2: More than ever, governments are relying on economic sanctions to try to bring other countries into line. Does the West's sanction addiction risk making a key instrument of foreign policy ineffective? You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Patrick Lane and also on today's show... Why India is proving an attractive and clever investor for poor countries concerned about Chinese influence? And do plans for a football super league risk an own goal? Last week, President Biden unveiled sweeping new sanctions aimed at the Russian economy. Today, I have approved several steps, including the expulsion of several Russian officials as a consequence of their Actions. The new measures are a response to the massive solar winds hack of federal agencies, interference in last year's presidential election, and Russia's treatment of dissidents, notably Alexei Navalny, an imprisoned opposition leader on hunger strike and in very poor health. I've also signed an executive order authorizing new measures, including sanctions to address specific harmful actions that Russia has taken against U.S. interests. Russia has retaliated, and further sanctions are likely to follow. I was clear with President Putin that we could have gone further, but I chose not to do so. Economic penalties as an alternative to military intervention have a long history. Their first recorded use was in 432 BC, when the Athenians banned traders from a rival power from their marketplaces. But in recent years, the popularity of sanctions has exploded. They've evolved from blanket commercial bans into sophisticated financial instruments. Yet as their popularity has grown, is their effectiveness being eroded?
1: Well, sanctions have gone from being a kind of somewhat peripheral part of the the foreign policy landscape to a core tool, really. Matthew Valencia is The Economist's
2: Deputy Business Affairs Editor.
1: Governments have, have developed a real taste for these things. They like to use them in situations where diplomacy is not seen as quite enough, but military intervention is seen as a step too far, too heavy handed. The use of sanctions has gone up and up. It's grown fairly steadily since the Second World War, particularly in America. And of course, in America, Donald Trump took things to to a new level with sanctions. Twice as many per year were were signed off than than under any previous president. There were over a thousand um, additions to the the sanctions lists under Trump.
2: Now, people might have expected Joe Biden to take a different approach. Mr. Biden's a very different man from, from Mr. Trump. In fact, though, they don't seem to be becoming any less popular under the new president. What's Mr. Biden's position and what's
1: his thinking? Well, that's right. He's largely started where, where Donald Trump, Trump left off, actually. In, in the past week, we've seen sweeping sanctions against Russia from the Biden administration. They even included sanctions against a, a Russian troll farm. Uh, there were also new restrictions on American investors' purchases of uh, Russian government bonds. And on top of that, we've seen you know, a variety of, of sanctions against other countries, uh, against China, over its uh, treatment of Uyghurs in Xinjiang province and also uh, over the um, dismantling of democracy in Hong Kong. Now, under under Biden, there have been one or two areas where sanctions have been rolled back already. Uh, one uh, is the, the sanctions that Donald Trump uh, imposed on officials at the International Criminal Court. And he's also, more importantly, holding out the prospect of sanctions relief for Iran, which was uh, subject to uh, the so-called maximum pressure sanctions under Trump. But, but it should be said there's a very long way to to go in those talks. Um, but what I've been hearing is that the Biden administration is, is really more interested in engagement than Trump was. Now, as you
2: say, sanctions have become used more and more over the years. Uh, are there other ways in which the, the way sanctions are used has changed with their popularity?
1: They've changed a lot over the years. You had the rise of multilateral sanctions, which were first enforced by uh, the League of Nations. The UN then took over and you saw uh, UN sanctions against the likes of Rhodesia, Saddam Hussein's Iraq, and so on. And then in the 1990s, you saw America starting to ramp up its unilateral sanctions um, against Iran and others you saw then a, perhaps the biggest single shift in sanctions policy was after the 9/11 attacks in 2001 when the US decided it was going to focus more on financial sanctions going after the money trails of the bad guys basically and that began an era of so-called smart sanctions and the idea was was partly to sort of try and ensure that there was less uh, collateral damage on on the general population which you'd seen with with previous sanctions particularly the sort of blanket the blanket embargoes You now have a a fairly dizzying array of these things. They go from countrywide embargoes to measures targeting specific industries or companies. We saw under Trump sanctions on Chinese microchips, uh, on specific companies like Huawei, the 5G network company, and then... On top of that, you're seeing the rise of secondary sanctions. They're imposed on not the bad guys, but anyone who's trading with the bad guys or the perceived bad guys. That's obviously led to accusations of legal overreach. Just one more change to mention is the fact that the targets have got a lot bigger. So in the old days, it used to be relative small fry in economic terms, um, the likes of North Korea, obviously very important strategically, but small in economic terms, Cuba and so on. These days, you're seeing bigger fish being targeted. China, Russia, and so on.
2: But presumably, the bigger your targets, the greater the likelihood of retaliation, because you're actually targeting people who can who can fight back.
1: Yes, that's right. So you know, look at China. It's uh, responded to some of the recent sanctions, like the the ones related to uh, Xinjiang and the Uyghurs, with with counter sanctions, and it's also using informal sanctions not just the the formal sorts. So again in relation to Xinjiang we saw the Chinese government whip up a consumer boycott there of western brands like H&M. Another way to hit back at sanctions is to create legal mechanisms that are designed to to negate them. So in the case of US sanctions China has developed what's called a blocking statute which is a legal mechanism that's designed to give some sort of legal cover to Chinese firms that violate US sanctions, but are seen by China as as acting legally under Chinese law. And that, in fact, is modelled on a a blocking statute that the EU developed for similar reasons. And, you know, one thing to add to the debate about the size of the targets as they get bigger and bigger is uh, that also lumps more and more costs on banks and companies that have to comply with sanctions and in many cases enforce them as essentially private sector enforcers but then there's the costs of fines as well. If you if you slip up, if you get things wrong, the fines for banks used to be in the low millions. Now they run into the billions. So given these these costs, you know, the improvement in defences against sanctions and the fact that
2: so many costs are landing on, on third parties, I mean, how effective are sanctions now against their intended targets?
1: Well, it's a mixed bag. There are some clear successes if you look back over the last 20 or 30 years. I mean, one... A little while ago, but it was a big success, was Libya, which under Gaddafi was was persuaded to give up its WMD programme, its weapons of mass destruction and its backing of terrorism. And that was done by a combination of tough sanctions and financial inducements. But there are a lot of failures, a lot. Iran could be counted as one, at least up till now. You know, for all of those sanctions, the, uh, the maximum pressure sanctions, you know, you still have the same regime in place. It's enriching uranium. Uh, It has more enriched uranium now than it had when Donald Trump became president. Iran is is seen by some as as one of the biggest failures to date. And if you look at the literature on this, it's not terribly encouraging either. One study found that in in the majority, the vast majority of cases, they don't achieve their ends.
2: Presumably the targets aren't just using countermeasures and devising sanctions of their own, but they're also finding ingenious ways of, of getting round sanctions imposed by the United States or by other Western countries.
1: You know, this has been going on for decades with sanctions busting, where you have sanctioned countries and entities using intermediaries to get around the restrictions and to get around embargoes fake trade documents shell companies other ways to disguise identity but in the longer run the real threat to uh, sanctions is reducing their long-term dependence on the economic networks that that give america so much leverage and that's you know primarily the the dollar the us financial system also america's dominance of the data economy so it's finance and tech and you know if you look at recent years we've seen china russia others looking to increase their economic self-sufficiency china has been doing this in chips you know huge investments in trying to uh, develop its own next generation chip industry in finance we've seen it with payments with cross border global payments china is developing a digital currency a national digital currency which its central bank is heavily involved with and the list goes on and even the eu is looking to bypass the dollar you know there's been talk by European officials in recent years of internationalising the euro, pushing to do that in, in, in a variety of ways. And, and, and that's being done with, with sanctions in mind. So essentially, the more sanctions are used, the more it makes sense for others to look for ways to circumvent them.
2: What does all this suggest about how effective Mr Biden's latest round of sanctions might be?
1: Well, it gets harder for the US in some ways. You know, as the world of sanctions becomes less unipolar, as others weigh in with their own sanctions, with counter-sanctions, and with and with measures to to get around them, you know one of the big lessons from the past, I'd say, is that uh, sticks without carrots don't tend to get you very far. Joe Biden does seem a bit more willing than Donald Trump to to dangle the carrots as he as he wields the stick. But there's a very clear risk for America, which is that the more it uses sanctions, the more it actually ends up weakening its its global economic leverage. Matthew Valencia,
2: thank you very much for
1: talking us through it. Thanks very much, Patrick.
2: And to read more about this story, and to keep up to date with developments in Alexei Navalny's condition from our correspondent Arkady Ostrovsky in Russia, make sure you're subscribed to The Economist. Go to economist.com forward slash podcast offer, and that link is in the notes for this episode.
3: Introducing Wondersweep from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard.
2: Next, India was once mentioned in the same breath as China as an emerging market power with capital to splurge, eager to spend on ambitious infrastructure projects abroad and cheap loans to poor countries. The spectacular rise in Chinese foreign investment over the past decade scotched that comparison. But as worries have grown about China's influence and the depth of its pockets, alternative sources of investment are looking increasingly appealing.
3: I was in Nairobi in Kenya and Lusaka in Zambia.
2: Avantika Chokoti is our international correspondent.
3: And especially in Zambia, the thing I was there worrying about was Chinese investment. Everyone talks a lot about concerns of Chinese influence, unsustainable lending practices. But what I really noticed was the amount of Indian investment I could see everywhere. So, on one of my first days in Lusaka, I went over a big flyover that had Indian flags all over it, and it had clearly been built by an Indian construction company. Later that day, for, for a completely separate story, I was on a rubbish dump.
2: These are recycling companies, they come to
3: and took a ride in one of the dump trucks. That was built by Tata Motors, um, part of the Mumbai based Tata Group. And in there, you know, the signage was in English. It was also in this winding Hindi script. And of course, you know, when you go to buy a SIM card at the airport, the telecoms network you're very likely to get is owned by Party Airtel, which is, again, a Mumbai, an India-based company.
2: As you say, Ivanka, it's Chinese investment that usually dominates this discussion. So how do India's commitments compare? In scale, first of all.
3: So this is the first very obvious reason why India's investment flies under the radar, because India's forays are basically tiny in comparison to China's. If you look at the United Nations data on the two countries' stock of foreign direct investment into developing economies, for various reasons, we took Hong Kong out of that because the UN counts Hong Kong in that developing economies category. Well, India's um, outstock by the latest estimates is around 7% of China's. But this is a very recent phenomenon. It's really, you know, in the 2000s that China's investment really ramped up. And in recent years, it's actually slowed down again. The latest estimate is that India's outward FDI into developing economies is worth about $46 billion. Again, you know, you have to remember that this data is sketchy. And it's really been ramping up. So in 2020, Indian businesses set up about 4,500 projects abroad. And that was only, you know, not even 400 in 2000.
2: So even though it's growing quickly, Indian investment in emerging markets is still hugely different from China's in scale. How does it differ in style?
3: In in China's case, you have a lot of state-backed enterprises that are doing this investment, which obviously raises concerns that they might have one eye on foreign policy, on geopolitical strategy. In India's case, it's really private sector companies that are doing this investment, Um, particularly in Africa, where a lot of the concerns about uh, foreign investment are centred. It's you know, basically three categories of inv- Indian investment. You have big multinational investors, so someone like the Tata Group. Then you have you know diaspora families that have been doing business there abroad for generations. And then thirdly, you have recently arrived Indian businessmen, which are sort of horribly dubbed rockets, because they tend to come, stay a short while, make some money and go back
2: You've touched on two big reasons why Indian investment is viewed much less as a strategic threat. Firstly, scale, and secondly, the source of the investment, that it's much more private sector. Are there other reasons?
3: The third thing is really just the way in which India is known to go about doing this business. And, you know, sometimes when you interview people in emerging markets, it seems like, you know, just pure racism, the way they talk about Chinese um, investment. And it's hard to know. You know is it true? Is it fair to say that a Chinese investor doesn't um, hire locally, doesn't train locally, doesn't buy locally um, and I was very sceptical of that view, but there was a World bank study in two thousand and six um, which looked at four hundred and fifty businesses across Africa, and it found that these Chinese businesses that they interviewed they employed about a fifth of their workforce from China and the region whereas the Indian businesses hired about 10% from India. I interviewed the economist who led that study and his view was that trend really continues. Um, So I spoke to a gentleman called Vimal Shah. He started the Bidco Africa empire with his father and his brother about 35 years ago and is now one of the best known businessmen in Kenya people of Indian origin are recognized as the 44th official tribe because they really have such a big part in society. He really had the view that this level of integration impacts the image of Indian investment in the region.
1: There is quite a good acceptance of Indians here. Well, there are two types, right? One is the ones who were born here, and then it's the others who came in later. So now the new crop, new generation, who are now taking over, they accept everyone because they've gone to schools with local people. So there's none of that, us versus them.
2: Clearly, there's a number of factors at work here, including cultural prejudices. But this marked difference in the proportion of investment from private sector versus state-backed sources, why has the Indian government been so hands-off?
3: So I suppose part of it is just ideological. You know, post-independence, the first leader of India, Nehru, he was sort of all for anti-colonial solidarity. The idea of India throwing its weight around other emerging markets rather than sticking with them, you know, it doesn't really fit well. Um, I mean, there's also simpler reasons, you know, can India afford it? And, you know, maybe it's just a product of the messy nature of democracy. Here's Vimal Shah of BidCo again. He really decried the lack of support from India for financing overseas investments.
1: We have a lot of people like us who are entrepreneurs, who are doing things, but to get one big large chunk of capital and let's deploy it, ooh, hang on. Wait now I gotta think about it. Which means if you're a Chinese, investing in Africa, the state gives them and say look unlimited. Show me one Indian company that gives me that as some insurance. When it comes to commercials, we leave them on their own. So no wonder China is doing what it's doing in Africa.
3: But, you know, I would say that there is another side of this. That arm's length relationship between the government in New Delhi and the businesses in Mumbai, it definitely helps the image of Indian business. It it, it helps people think that they're independent. If you are a Bharti Airtel and you control the airwaves in much of Africa... It helps if the local government isn't worried that you're a telecoms company that will follow the orders of the Indian government. So, okay, sure, they're not using this strategically as they might, but, you know, on the converse, it certainly must help these businesses to be seen as independent.
2: Avantika Chilkoti, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And finally, a new European football Super League ...proposed by a dozen of the continent's leading clubs... ...is threatening to disrupt the sport at its highest level. The idea, in effect an alternative to the Champions League... ...which is Europe's top club competition... ...has provoked outrage... ...among fans, administrators, politicians, ex-players. This is, for me, a war on football. The heart of the game, you know, just just ripping it out of us. Now, the clubs involved hope to score a financial hat-trick... But might it turn out to be an own goal? The idea is that you'd have 15 of the biggest clubs
0: in Europe taking part every year in this annual league competition.
2: Tom Wainwright is our media editor.
0: And I say the biggest clubs because these wouldn't necessarily be The best clubs, they tend to be the the most well-known clubs. So from England, for example, we've got Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, the two Manchester clubs and Tottenham Hotspur. But these 15 would have a place automatically in this league every year. They wouldn't need to qualify. There'd be no risk of relegation. There'd be five more spaces for other clubs which could play if they qualify. But the top 15 would be there every year without any risk to them. This has understandably got some people rather annoyed.
2: So if they're faced with all this anger, why are these clubs doing this? What's at stake?
0: Well, what's at stake is lots and lots and lots of money. Um, And the idea, really, that that these big clubs have is that if they can play each other more often, then fans will like that. And so TV ratings will go up and so broadcast rights will become more valuable. Because at the moment, a funny sort of quirk of world football is that the biggest teams in the world actually don't get to play each other All that often. To give you one example, Bayern Munich and Barcelona, two of the biggest clubs in the world, have only played each other, I think, about 11 times ever. Whereas if you look at a sport like, say, Major League Baseball in the United States, the top clubs will play each other fairly often. I think the other way, though, that they hope to make more money out of this is through this thing about not risking relegation, because as soon as you eliminate that risk... It means that your income stream and in future is, is guaranteed. It makes it much more easy for them to borrow against their future earnings because they can say to investors, look, you know, we're in this league forever now. <laughs> and it seems that the fans that they have in mind here are what they call the fans of the future and that there's been this terribly damaging leak of a comment by one person involved who supposedly drew a contrast between legacy fans being people who support the clubs at the moment, who they seem willing to sort of discard in pursuit of fans perhaps younger fans perhaps fans in other parts of the world who might enjoy the kind of razzmatazz of a a big super league with all the best players all the biggest teams playing each other all the time
2: now do we have any indication of how successful this is likely to be I mean purely financially not many football clubs are listed but some are. are there any clues there so yeah, as you say, not all that many of these
0: clubs are publicly listed, but one example, for instance, is uh, Juventus in Italy. And on Monday, the day after the plan was announced, its share price rose 18%. It's fallen a bit on Tuesday today because it seems that the reaction to this plan has been so hostile that I think people are wondering if it's going to go ahead or whether it could even backfire. But at the moment, that they're still up on where they were last Friday before people knew about this
2: plan. And we should say before we move on, Tom, that Exor, which is a big shareholder in, in Juventus, is also the biggest shareholder in the Economist parent company and one of the architects of the Super League, Andrea Agnelli, sits on Exor's board. Um, what about the financial implications for the clubs that aren't involved? What could this mean for them? Well,
0: the other leagues are understandably not very happy about this. I mean, UEFA, which is the European Football Association, is dead against this plan. For the other national leagues, it's potentially really bad news. I mean, imagine the English Premier League without the so-called Big Six, that the effect would be likely to be a a big downward jump in the value of the broadcast rights, for example. And the Premier League at the moment is, is shortly due to be auctioning broadcast rights for the next period It's hard to imagine the auction of those rights going ahead until this whole business is cleared up. And the the clubs that are proposing this Super League say that with all the extra money that they hope to make out of it, there'll be enough left over for them to distribute among smaller clubs. Something a bit like that happens with Major League Baseball. But I think some smaller clubs are a bit sceptical about this and some of them worry about getting left behind. And above all, of course, it, it means that it's much harder for them to... Ever get promoted, then you're probably going to get less money from uh, broadcast rights, you probably get less valuable sponsorship deals, and you're generally a less famous club, so it means much lower incomes.
2: And to go back to the prospects for this breakaway league, I mean, presumably whether it works or not is going to depend on all sorts of things. I mean, the value of the television rights that they can get and whether enough people pay to watch it, whether they can stop the money that comes into them sort of leaking or draining through to to players, which is what's happened in the past. How are they thinking about those things? I suppose
0: when it comes to wages, I mean, one advantage for the clubs of having this kind of closed league is that it increases the opportunities for wage agreements across the league. And you see that in some American leagues which are closed. So that's one potential advantage for them.
2: And that raises some interesting questions too, because if you've also got five clubs who are having to qualify from their domestic leagues where presumably you don't have the same rules operating. It's hard to see how those two things will interact. After all this, do you think it will go ahead? I
0: think it's hard to see it happening in exactly the form that they're proposing. I mean, you've heard that the British government in particular has been very, very strongly against the idea. Here's Oliver Dowden, the sports minister.
2: Football is nothing without its fans. And these owners should remember that they are only temporary custodians of their clubs and they forget fans at their peril.
0: This is by no means the first time that the top clubs in Europe have said that they want to form a league of their own. And and one of the last times it happened was back in, I think it was 1998. And the result was that UEFA adapted the Champions League to make it a bit more palatable to these clubs. They, They made it bigger, they had more matches and so on. And I wonder if something like that might happen this time. I, I think the idea of a full-blown super league breaking away, going it alone, is it's harder to imagine that today than it was when this thing was announced because the reaction has been so so hostile. But I do wonder if this will be another moment when governments and football associations sit down and and say, look, you know, we don't want you to do this, but we do understand that more European games is something that is probably in everybody's interest so perhaps we can find a way of allowing that to happen
2: tom i don't know if these 12 clubs thought it was all over on sunday night but uh, but it certainly isn't <laughs> thank you very much thank you and thank you for listening to money talks don't forget to rate us on apple podcasts or wherever you listen and an announcement we're moving from the 5th of may that's in two episodes time money talks will be published every wednesday that's every wednesday from the 5th of may make sure you don't miss an episode. Thanks to our producer and woman of the match, Amika Shortino-Nolan. I'm Patrick Lane. In London, this is The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK.